0: Hi, I'm Dr. Claude Nawonka, lecturer in Film, Culture and Society at University College London and an associate of the Sarah Parker Amon Centre of Racism and Racialisation here at UCL. Today, it's a pleasure to be joined by Professor Coretta Phillips. Coretta is Professor of Criminology and Social Policy at the London School of Economics and Political Science. Her major research interests are within the fields of race, ethnicity, crime, criminal justice and social policy. Her most current research is a major study providing the first systematic, comprehensive and historically grounded accounts of crime and the criminal justice experiences of gypsies and travellers in England since the 1960s. Coretta's most recent book, The Multicultural Prison, jointly won the Chronology Book Prize in 2013 and was shortlisted for the BBC Radio 4 Thinking Aloud British Psychological Association Award for Ethnography in 2014. Throughout the podcast, we'll be discussing Coretta's latest research and the ideas that informed her work on race within the criminal justice system. Coretta, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I want to begin by going back to your 2012 book, The Multicultural Prison, which was a fascinating interdisciplinary study of the multiracial, multi ethic, and multi faith inmates who both the Maidstone and watched the prisons. And the way you use ethnographic methods to capture both the organic experiences of multiculture and the more structured and governed forms of multiculturalism taking place within the prison system. What was the motivation for the book, but also what was it that was distinctive about the everyday forms of racial interaction, integration and racism and racial difference that you found in the two prisons?
1: So I guess I've long been interested in the ambivalences of multiculture and changes in those complexities over time and so I mean, interestingly, at that time, we had a kind of political climate that was pro-equality. So we had a new Labour government, although this didn't actually extend very much to gypsies and travellers, which I'll say a bit more about later. But we just had Lawrence. And of course, many of us working in the field were hopeful, but not overly optimistic that issues of societal and institutional racism would stay on the political agenda. But then in the policy domain, and I sort of sit in my work between sort of social policy and criminology, there we'd had the Mubarak inquiry. So we'd had the investigation into the racist inflected murder of a young Asian boy by his white cellmate. And the Commission for Racial Equality, as it was then, had investigated the prison service and found so many examples of unlawful discrimination in its treatment and the services it provided for prisoners. So that was the kind of context. But I think for prison sociologists, prison life is as much about the kind of horizontal relations between prisoners as it is about the vertical relations between prisoners and prison officers and the administration and the state more generally and I think that I'd seen that most criminologists at least in the UK tended to focus on the latter when it came to race and so there was a real massive gap I thought in in understanding more about horizontal relations between prisoners and so it was that that I really got interested in so I was really intrigued by, you know, what happens when you bring together under very unique and constrained conditions. You've got on the one hand, white, typically working class men from kind of semi rural area that I imagined would have little experience of multicultural and bringing them together with a primarily black working class male prison population with in the other direction little experience of monoculture or mm-hmm. of you know life outside the multicultural city so I was kind of really interested in exploring in more detail how relations were managed by prisoners what was going on kind of thing in prisoner society out of the view of prison officers you know, when I was thinking about looking back, so that book was published 10 years ago, and I was thinking about what I was doing in 2006, round about that time period. So we were into a period of new labour, and I was living in Southeast London then, and it was a time when people were getting quite excited because it was the, the, some of the research started was the 2006 Euros. Mm. And there was a really sort of interesting kind of personal political introspection that was going Going on as a result of that. So, my kids at the time were at primary school and they asked me to get them a wristband to support England. And I did it unthinkingly. And then, when I bought these two wristbands that had the Union Jack on them, I was suddenly really staggered by how it hadn't had an immediate and overwhelming, you know, my reaction hadn't been one of fear and anxiety and anger. And that felt really remarkable to me because, in when I was my kid's age, in 1976, both the England flag and the Union Jack was just such a really kind of symbolic of racist hatred, of violence, of exclusion. And it, uh, the flag literally terrified me as a child. So at a kind of personal level, I was thinking, well, something's changed. But as ever, it's always important to understand those kinds of nuance of what has changed. And so in the prison, there was some of the kind of pretty old-fashioned racism that I'd grown up with. It was still alive and kicking in Kent, you know, the so-called garden of England, but really it's a garden of white England. And that, that trope of the countryside is some somewhere that I think still remains inaccessible to perhaps people like you and me at least. So there was violent racism in the accounts that some men told us about their experiences of prison. You know, they talked about the use of the m words less positive discretion and leniency, quite heavy handed policing of black and Muslim prisoners. And what they often saw as biased decisions in their access to privileges and sort of more positive conditions within the prison. And then there was the more subtle kind of signs of disrespect, lack of empathy felt by some. But then there were also some minority prisoners who'd been in the prison system for a long time who said they didn't see racism between in these kind of interactions between prison officers and prisoners, at least. And some people would talk about how it had been so different for them in like the 1990s than it was in the early 2000s. But I think, you know, I started off this study by being really interested in the kind of nature of multiculture in prison social relations between prisoners. And there was very much the kind of convivial multiculture that, you know, to use Gilroy's work, which was straightforward, kind of banal. And it was very much like that experienced in other multicultural spaces and educational spaces, you know, those places outside the prison. But at the same time, there was a really visceral, strained animosity from some white prisoners who felt really usurped in prison hierarchies. They resented what they saw as the cultural dominance of black prisoners. They were unsettled by their loss of implicit superiority and they were really angry about race equality. And now we're kind of quite familiar, I think, with, you know, talking about the so-called white working class that have been, you know, the left behind. But at that time, I mean, it wasn't that it was new, but it was interesting that that was a real feature of prison social relations. And for a lot of white prisoners, it was really straightforward. It was a kind of zero sum game. So if you had equality for black and Asian prisoners, that meant inequality for them. And so those kinds of tensions were really raw in the prison. And it underlined how valuable it is to have a racially mixed, ethnically mixed research team to be able to kind of pick up on some of that stuff. But that real kind of palpable sense of grievance where they saw minority prisoners as culturally threatening, but also sometimes kind of culturally exciting. But there was that really strong view that race was being used to claim privileges in the prison and this race card was always being played by particularly black and muslim prisoners and it was unfairly stacked against white prisoners so i think in that research it was a really valuable lesson into looking at some of the kind of specificities of everyday life you know so in prison it's often all about the food and the sharing of food and disputes over kitchen space was a really good way of trying to understand a lot of these complicated dynamics that were going on in the prison.
0: I mean even listening to you now describing your methodologies for that work what I find is a consistent thread in your work and also in your co-written research with people like Ben Bowling and many others is this idea of a black criminology as a kind of paradigm for exploring the generally unexamined context of what we've now been conditioned to attribute as black crime and the representation of black people in the criminal justice system. It's something I certainly saw in your paper, Dear British Criminology, where has all the race and racism gone? And what it described as the institutional whiteness of discipline. So can you talk a little about what you feel are the central tenets of black criminology? or well, I guess the more racially sensitive and exploratory Criminological approaches?
1: Yeah, so I don't know if I would necessarily locate myself as working entirely within that paradigm. So the idea of a black criminology was first coined 30 years ago by Catherine Russell in the US. And it was really intriguing to me at the time because I got my first academic job working in the US and It was really interesting because for many of the students, so I was teaching a university in downtown Newark in New Jersey, and a lot of the students there were really unhappy about there not being any black faculty And then there was this sort of slight discombobulation that they managed to find somebody who was black or brown, but not from the US. So I kind of was exposed to some of the kind of quite interesting dynamics of race in the university. But within the discipline, what Russell was really doing was calling out the whiteness of criminological theory in the US and the whiteness of scholars. And she was particularly critical of the kind of statement of this fact that, you know, we see one of the arguments, at least in the US context, is we see elevated rates of offending amongst African-Americans and those patterns have been standing. but there's been very little thoughtful theoretical attention paid to why those patterns exist. And so she felt really strongly right in then that the US needed a black criminology. And so she thought it was important to incorporate the voices of black people into criminological research. So advocating a move away from the kind of more epistemologically distant positivist research, which is really dominant, very dominant in US criminology, And her position, at least, was that in the beginning, uh, black criminology had to be the preserve of black criminologists only, that we'd be able to draw on much more sort of holistic understandings of racialized conditions in society and that we wouldn't operate with some of the kinds of unfounded myths and biases that other criminologists might do. But what I think over the years has been more important to me than necessarily a focus on a black criminology is the need to operationalise racism and racialisation. And I mean that in its really broadest kind of economic, political and historical sense and really beginning long before people come into contact with the criminal justice system. So, you know, I think we kind of have to still confront how what's sometimes referred to as racial inequalities, say in educational, in the labour market, you know, we understand that they're likely to have an impact on, they're going to increase people's pressure and the temptations of crime. But we shouldn't lose sight of, you know, really simple fact that if you sent in a job application with your name, your surname, there's there's a really good chance that it will be less favourably reviewed by an employer than if you put in an application form and pretended your name was Smith Mm. and so for me I'm really frustrated and tired of the kind of arguments that the disproportionality we see in the criminal justice system is just about social class you know it's black people are there because they are of a lower social class position and that that social class position is I think the important point is, in a sense, in many ways, it's kind of preordained if you have black or brown skin. So it doesn't make sense to think, you know, when you're looking at prison populations, say, or you're looking at patterns of stop and search, that socioeconomic deprivation is the only explanation. And I think the other thing for me is making the connections between the historical features of race in the past, but also in the present. So, you know, the kind of approach that I mentioned where you send in an application for a job, those studies that were, you know, conducted initially in the early 70s show that for some groups, those patterns just haven't changed, even though we're now in... I think the last study was done in the mid 2010s or something. And, you know, so I think for me, that has always got to be really central to understanding whenever we're looking at any kind of policy domains, whether that's, you know, the education system or the labour market or the criminal justice system is the idea that racism can't be just bracketed away as a kind of contemporary experience it seems far more important to me that we're able to engage with the complexity of racism and not look at it in a kind of simply binary fashion.
0: I'm fascinated by these ideas and how these ideas become present in your 2020 article, The Pains of Racism and Economic Adversity in Young Londoners' Lives, Sketching the Contours, and how you establish these really interesting metaphorical metrics so, depth, width, breadth, looseness, tightness, all to try and define the dynamics of race and racialisation as experienced by young men in London. Can you explain a bit more about how these organising frameworks capture the everyday encounters with racism as a subjective experience for young men within these spaces of multiculture in London?
1: Yeah, so I think that's the kind of continuation on from this way of thinking about how we operationalise racism and as a way of the importance of kind of capturing the nuances of those processes and different forms of racism. So I think, you know, I've just been so frustrated by mainstream social science research, which has mostly, not exclusively, but mostly been conducted by white scholars who think about racism as a kind of, you know, it's present or it's absent. And I think for those of us who always are vulnerable to its tentacles in the sense, I suppose it's, you know, we just in a really kind of obvious way recognize it's much more complex than that. So in that paper, I really wanted to try and reflect the range, both in terms of kind of breadth and depth but to also think about the emotional register. So to think about how it's felt and embodied, to recognise it just where you see it in kind of mundane spaces and places, but also just recognising how profound it is. And so I think I wanted to try and find a way to think about the multitude of subjective reactions to racial microaggressions and violent racism and really everything in between. So I wanted to try and articulate how these processes of racialisation are also intercepted by economic adversity. So I thought about this and I talked about the pains of racism in prison, but this paper was kind of extending that to recognise Those intersections, those pains, and how they're amplified by being economically and politically marginal when you're kind of facing the everyday grind, but facing what are kind of often insurmountable obstacles. So I like the idea of depth. You know, these metrics, if you like, they're descriptive, so they help us to think about it. So the depth is thinking about the systemic nature of oppressive racial conditions in society blocked opportunities and the what the material burden is of constant negative perception and being read as inferior by potential employers by teachers police officers or whatever and I think certainly my sense is that that's particularly also intersected by negative racialized masculinities as well so in that study at least their focus was on men but what I also liked and feel is a kind of tricky area or a tricky thing to think about but breadth denotes how this goes easily beyond a kind of white black binary and speaks to the internal racializing processes that occur within and between minority ethnic communities you know including those who've faced majority white racism and then i think the looseness is is a way of articulating what are the blurred boundaries of that kind of, sometimes internally subjective process that we go through when we've been on the receiving end and you're kind of wondering you're trying to unpack something an interaction that's happened or an experience that you've had and you know you're having that kind of conversation with yourself you know was what just happened to me racist or not that kind of lack of clarity sometimes about what's going on in those kinds of interactions and then tightness I liked particularly as a way of really visually and emotionally reflecting the kind of grip that negative racialisation and economic marginalisation has on individuals. And it's a kind of a descriptor of a real essence of powerlessness and constraint of being really kind of hemmed in when there were limited options for you to kind of manoeuvre towards any kind of positive outcomes. So that felt like a way of being able to get some of the granularity of of racism to be able to move away from that kind of sometimes simplistic binary.
0: One of the points that I wanted to explore was also your most recent research which is of course titled Realities Checked Interpreting Stories of Crime in Gypsy and Traveller Communities which is the first systematic and comprehensive and historically grounded account of the crime and criminal justice experiences of gypsies and Traveller communities in England since 1960. Why was it important to approach a study in the particular context of victimisation rather than simply a quantitative study of gypsy and Traveller communities within the criminal justice system?
1: Yeah, so I think for me, the situation with gypsies and travellers, like with other groups, isn't just about the kind of representation. It's not just about a kind of statistical discussion about why there is disproportionality or overrepresentation. And for these groups, I think that, you know, typically they're positioned in political debates and they're represented in particular ways in the media and in public discourse as just simply and inherently criminal So criminality is just seen as a mark of their cultural practices. There's absolutely no empirical evidence to support that view. But for me, just as importantly, because I'm familiar with the data that the states collected looking at self-report offending, but also importantly looking at victimisation. So we have a crime survey that every year, Crime Survey of England and Wales And every year it varies a bit between 30 and 40,000 people are approached to talk about their experiences of crime. And so this survey is really valuable because it picks up a lot of what doesn't get reported to the police, which is most crime. But that household survey has provided us with some patterns of victimisation and offending amongst white, black and Asian groups but we don't have anything that addresses gypsies and travellers' experience. So we simply don't know if they experience higher rates of victimisation than we would expect based on their representation in the general population. And I think given that there are just extreme socioeconomic, educational and health inequalities that they face, makes them, you know, one of, or if not on some indicators at least, the most disadvantaged minority ethnic group in Britain, and also, a group that it seems to be acceptable to be openly racist towards. It felt like that this was a you know real major gap in our understanding and in our knowledge. So this mixed methods study that I'm involved in with my colleague Zoe James at the University of Plymouth and Becky Taylor at UEA, the study there is really kind of recognising. On the one hand, kind of policymakers, politicians, and even some social scientists, of course, are much more persuaded by quantitative data and attempts at broadly representative sampling. But I think given my sort of epistemological position, I think we need perhaps that quantitative data but alongside understanding also subjective experiences and understanding treatment by the criminal justice agencies and so to get that more detailed and that deeper analysis of what's going on you need to hear the stories behind and the those trajectories into the criminal justice system so for me I think it's that it's a way of trying to connect people's individual biographies with you know the much broader socio-political histories in which those groups have been historically and then in the contemporary period position so the studies really I think reflecting those elements of what I think is really valuable in coming to understand more about where a group is and its relationship with particular institutions yeah, indeed,
0: because what I find particularly significant about the research is, as you mentioned, it's mixed methodology, notably the collection of oral histories from both Gypsy and tribal communities and individuals in prison as well. So, do you see this as a kind of subversiveness, even in terms of methodology, You that it allows the Gypsy and tribal communities to narrate and therefore define their own experience of crime and discrimination within both criminological and, I guess, sociological research as well?
1: I mean, I think. Strictly speaking, if I was going to claim disciplinary subversiveness, this would be a project of co-production or indeed it would be one entirely spearheaded by gypsies and travellers. And that's not what we're doing in this study. So I think it'd be disingenuous of me to try and kind of claim that. And I think in the conception of the project, the crime survey and the specialist expertise that's needed in running a crime survey, I think means that... It's much harder for that to be fully situated within a project that might be run entirely by gypsies and travellers. But in the study, what we are doing is trying to recruit gypsy and traveller research assistants and they in turn will recruit contract interviewers from gypsy and traveller communities who will do the crime survey in the field and be very much part of the kind of interpretation of the research findings and then really importantly how they're disseminated because of course this is really tricky terrain for groups that are vilified essentially and who are seen as criminally threatening so you know we need to be really careful and really ethical in the way in which we talk about those research findings. And I think that the other thing is to recognise for those groups that are deeply suspicious of the state and particularly the criminal justice agencies, they're often really anxious about any kind of government surveys. So we need to exercise caution in recognising that deep suspicion about the survey and the risks that it entails for communities who rarely get an opportunity to present their narrative of what's going on about their lives.
0: One of the memories that I have when I was working, obviously, with you at LSC was the two occasions where we shared a public platform talking around race and racial research. The first one was a very public event that marked the 20 years since the 1999 McPherson report into the murder of Stephen Lawrence and the subsequent police investigation, and the reforms that are promised within the police force, our legal systems and other spheres of public life. And the, I guess, unrealization of some of those promises were addressed by David Lammy on the same day in that speech on the current state of policing and the criminal justice system in relation to race and the representation of black people within it. What for you has been the primary enablers of the continuation of racism and racialization in the criminal justice system have you identified any new or modified practices of racism across these two decades?
1: So I look at it in a slightly different way, I think, and, and I see racism as, you know, just hugely versatile and pervasive. And so I think it's easy for it to be kind of constantly reestablished in some way, in which, especially within institutions, that they maintain their kind of white dominance as a mechanism of power. So in a very obvious way, and this is one of the features, I guess, a fairly central tenet of critical race theory, that, you know, whose interest is it to reform in any kind of deep and fundamental way? I mean, certainly not the white majority who have power within the kind of political system and most of the other state institutions and certainly within the criminal justice system. So I think it's always a tiny number that are really willing to relinquish that power on a permanent basis And I think what you tend to see is that there will be efforts at, you know, various political moments when they might appear to be more willing to kind of relinquish that power on a permanent basis. But I think that's kind of really quite rare. And and often that's only done when the spotlight is on them. So, you know, when you have your George Floyd moments or your Stephen Lawrence moments, whereas... So often one of the reforms that is suggested as a way of changing some of the dynamics in the criminal justice system is to have more black police officers, more black people working with those under probation supervision, working in the courts and and the prison system. But I don't see that as a way of fundamentally changing any of those institutional structures, processes and practices that are really ordered in such ways that they will work against the interests of vulnerable groups. The practices of racism, I think, have always been fairly sometimes blatant, blunt practices, but always, I think, much more subtle and difficult to kind of pin down in a way. So I think to see any substantive change is dependent on white people and that they need to be invested in thinking about racism as something that is something more than just about social class inequalities. And I think one of the things that I always find really unsettling is when you see a kind of almost the glee amongst some scholars when you have any kind of research findings which purport to show that racism is a thing of the past rather than it's something Mm -hmm. that has been modified and continues to be practiced in you know sometimes very complex ways and it's You know, it's obscured in statements of political intentions to act in ways that uphold equality. But, of course, in reality, there are multiple means by which racism can continue. And I think the danger is working in any one of those single domains, like just in the criminal justice system, obscures what's going on, you know, in other parts of society.
0: The other occasion that I recall very well was the more intimate gathering of academics and staff at LSE discussing the everyday racisms and forms of policing experienced on university campuses around the UK. But of course, this extends to so many educational spaces where black children have been subjected to forms of criminalising, adultification and violation. The most recent example I can think of is Child Q, the 15-year-old black school who was strip-searched by police being taken out of the exam where racism was deemed to be an influential factor in the police's actions that day. Thinking about your research on how some ethnic groups become entangled within the criminal justice system, how do you assess how the supposedly safe and innocent spaces of the playgrounds and lecture halls are now simple extensions of the scope for the racialized policing of black and brown people?
1: So I'm not sure I would see them as extensions. I would see them as perhaps just historically spaces in which policing has occurred so I think education has always been about policing policing of supposed inferiority or as a means to pacify and I think what's interesting about university education is that it has the facade of operating quite differently it shields itself from racism universities do I think in my mind because they see racism as something that goes on out there not in here so racism is you know obviously it's in the actions of the police or the white working class but it's not in the hallowed spaces of the academy and I think for me that makes the racism in universities all the more terrifying the complacency and the complicity in racist practices in higher education is something that I mean I just find overwhelming it makes me sad and it makes me angry and it can also make me feel pretty hopeless because it operates so subtly but at the same time so pervasively you know in a space in a climate where a university education is seen as superior it's it's not vulnerable to the lack of analytical insights that occur outside the university you know it's That kind of racism is seen as a preserve of people that are intellectually ignorant. Whereas I just see it as a way of, you know, the university provides a kind of way to hide behind a sort of intellectualism. So the police can't avoid having their racism called out, but universities have in the past and they still can now. These supposedly safe and innocent spaces, I think that they operate in ways, not always of active policing, but they work in ways that circumscribe the potential for success in the lives of black and brown people, I think. One of the things that I've found profoundly depressing, actually, is that having spent 30-odd years looking at racism within criminal justice institutions and looking at how they've responded to various crises over the years. But I feel that there is more thoughtful engagement with what race equality might mean in the criminal justice agencies than in higher education institutions. I see the police and the prison service ahead of the university sector when it comes to thinking about race equality. And that feels obviously quite profound and shocking, but I think that's the kind of view that I've reached in 30 years, you know, engaged in both of those different kinds of spaces.
0: Caressa, thanks so much for your time today. It's been a pleasure speaking with you on the podcast.
1: Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more information about UCL's Sarah Parker Roman Centre, find us at ucl.ac.uk forward slash racism racialization racialisation or follow us on Twitter at UCL underscore SPRC.